Welcome back to Mortuary Mayhem, a podcast by funeral service professionals for funeral service professionals, where any day above ground is a good one. Our guest today is Shauna Rodenbach. She's a skilled embalmer and educator, having made significant contributions to the field of anatomical embalming. We're honored to have you join us today, Shauna. Before we get started, what should our listeners know about the momptician? as I know you are affectionately known. (laughs) Well, uh, I've been a licensed funeral director and embalmer for the past 20 years. And uh, I'm in education and uh, own my own business. I I have Rotobah Mortuary Education and Consulting and do a lot of work with anatomical embalming and uh, chemical development. Now... Since we have such a broad audience of listeners, what is the difference between anatomical embalming and the embalming that takes place at a funeral home? Well, the embalming that takes place at a funeral home is mostly for aesthetic purposes, not for really long-term preservation. Whereas anatomical embalming is not at all for aesthetic purposes and is really for extremely long-term embalming. And we're talking anywhere from six months to five years that some of these donors are kept for anatomical use. So there's a lot of chemical that is used with anatomical embalming, whereas with funeral home embalming, you're using a very minimal amount for short-term preservation. How do we anatomically embalm? What does this entail? Well, what you're doing is you're trying to really saturate the system with chemical. With funeral home embalming, you are just getting a very minimal amount of preservation that allows you to get through the funeral service and to the burial or cremation, just depending on whatever the family selects. Um, But with anatomical embalming, you are looking at about two and a half gallons of fluid for every 50 pounds of body weight. So, you know, a hundred pound body, you're using five gallons of fluid, 200 pound body, you're using 10 gallons of fluid. And when you're doing that, given the fact that the fluid weighs approximately eight pounds per gallon, you could be adding to a 200 pound person, another 80 pounds of weight just in preservation fluid. So that saturation of the system allows us to keep the body for a longer period of time and keep it constituted. Um, In other words, keep it from drying out and keep it from uh, decaying during the long-term use. With anatomical embalming, we also do not do any cavity treatment like you would with standard funeral home embalming. With standard funeral home embalming, you're going to use the trocar to go in and drain all of the fluid from the various internal organs and then replace that with cavity fluid. With anatomical embalming, since the organs are so critical for study, whether that's an anatomy class or whether you're looking at pathological conditions, you want to keep those organs intact. So the fluid that is going through the system, the excess is actually being 
stored in the various cavities. So the extra fluid is going through and preserving everything in the cavity without draining the excess fluid. I'm sure there's plenty of areas in the field of anatomical embalming where we can improve. Where should we place our focus? Oh, there's lots of places that there are room for improvement. So with anatomical embalming, a standard anatomical donor is embalmed with a combination of formaldehyde and phenol. Formaldehyde and phenol are both very toxic chemicals. Um, formaldehyde is highly regulated by, um, by OSHA. There, it has its own standard with um, exposure limits. Uh, phenol is not as highly regulated. It doesn't have its own standard, but extremely, extremely dangerous. Um, in fact, with a lot of the gloves that we use, we have to be very careful to make sure that the phenol isn't penetrating the glove while we're using it. So latex gloves, for example, can't be used with anatomical donors because the phenol will melt the latex and will absorb into your skin. You can end up with phenol poisoning. So the use of extremely toxic chemicals is almost contrary to the goal of anatomical embalming, which in many cases is the furtherment of medical science. Some of the things that we've been working on are non-toxic anatomical solutions. Um, I currently work with a company that is utilizing ethanol as the main component to their anatomical solution, which is non-toxic and uh, you don't have to worry about the fumes. There are also other aspects of anatomical embalming um, that are actually called soft cure embalming. And the soft curation, the idea behind it is to really recreate um, a natural environment for mostly surgeons, medics, things of the sort, to be able to practice um, surgical procedures. So there are various formulations that allow us to do soft curation, but it limits the amount of time that the donor can be used because preservation is sacrificed for pliability. So in those circumstances, we're still working on formulations that will allow us increased pliability, but still long-term use. Right now, um, maximum use for a soft curation donor is about a year. And those, those formulations can be anything from a mild formaldehyde base to an ethanol base. And uh, there are some formulations that are actually ammonium nitrate based, which if you know anything about chemistry, ammonium nitrate is also one of the main components for explosives. <laughs> When I'm meeting with a family, is there anything that I should know regarding, you're saying that there's different types of cases and some are preserved for longer than others and some are preserved for different purposes than others. When I'm meeting with a family, what should I know? This family came in, they want their family member to be donated to medical science. Sure, sure. One of the most important things is to know about the program that you're donating to. There are 
all kinds of different programs that do all kinds of different things. You can have a mortuary science program where the body is donated simply for the um, students to practice the art of embalming. There are medical programs where they can be used for anything from anatomical dissection to experimentation, surgical practice, things of the sort. So it's really important to know the goal of the program that you're going to be donating to. In addition to that, really take a look at the donation paperwork that outlines some of the things that the program reserves the right to do. So it, it may not necessarily be what they normally do, but they reserve the right to do XYZ. So there are some programs that may keep certain tissues, organs, blood samples, things of the sort. There are some programs that have what are called forever donors, which means that you won't get the cremated remains back. Those donors have been designated for forever to the program. Um, but really get to know those programs and get to know the ins and outs of what they are working toward because it's really important for either the individual who is donating themselves or the family that is donating a loved one to understand what can happen during that process. The last thing that you want is for a donation to happen and then the family realizes that dissection is going to happen or things of the sort and then to have them be uncomfortable with it. So a clear transparency of the program is the best bet. If a program does not have 100% transparency, I would tend to stay away from them. Um, just because you know there's absolutely no reason not to communicate everything that is being done in that particular program. Um, and like I said, it can be anything from medical experimentation to, um, you know, anatomical dissection and everything in between. Um, a lot of programs also utilize image capture, video, and things of the sort for educational purposes. So it's important for the family to understand that images of their loved one could possibly be used for educational purposes and making sure that they're okay with that. Because once again, the last thing that you want is for a family possibly to run into an image of their loved one or something of the sort um, and not realize that that could have been a possibility. I could definitely see that being a problem. And if I remember back, absolutely. Yeah, remember back to the history books, I think that happened in some of the more antiquated times of our start of our profession, uh, where famous people, right. were, I think, found <laughs> from the grave rivers and <laughs> things like that. Always makes for a good story, right? Don't don't dig up a famous person, loved one, I guess. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> when I'm meeting with the family and they they do want to make that donation to medical science or to an embalming school. And now we both obviously are educators. You know, we definitely see the value in donating to the mortuary science programs. When I'm meeting with this family and they want to donate right away, is there restrictions with that? Is there a time frame that this family has to right. determine that they wanted to do this? How, how does that all work? So depending on the program and the ultimate goal of that program, there could be various restrictions in place. 
For mortuary science programs, the restrictions are less severe than for medical study. With mortuary science programs, we really want the students to be able to see a variety of different conditions. So weight is not necessarily a restriction. Um, we will restrict on certain pathological conditions, but mostly if they're contagious, um, not necessarily if there's other issues. And with mortuary science programs, the amount of time between death and embalming is not as critical just due to the fact that once again, mortuary science students need to see a variety of different conditions because that's what they're going to run into in the field. However, when you're looking at medical study, it's very important to receive the donor as quickly as possible once they've passed away, because the faster you can embalm someone, the more intact the organs are going to be and the less likely that decomposition has already set in. So typically speaking, medical programs will limit it to a day or two. Um, once someone has passed away, you've got a day or two in order to designate that individual to a certain program. There are also strict restrictions on weight, pathology, um, and sometimes if the individual has had limbs or appendages amputated, um, that could be a disqualifying factor. So um, many different pathologies are going to be disqualifying factors. Anything that's contagious or anything that might, especially if it's a, a an, for an anatomy class, anything that could compromise standard anatomy could be a disqualifying factor. But one of the most controversial limiting factors is weight. A lot of programs will limit the weight of the donor to be between 180 to 200 pounds, um, or they'll limit it uh, by body mass index. Um, there are a lot of issues, especially when you look at overall inclusion and societal norms, um, especially in the United States, weight has gone up in, in, you know, recent years. And it is far more frequent to see someone that is above 200 pounds attempting to donate into some of these programs. One of the issues that we run into, especially in medical science, is that a lot of these donation programs run at a financial deficit, which means they might be using equipment that is fairly antiquated and not necessarily designed for a larger body mass. In addition, some of these laboratories are very lowly, low staffed. So you won't necessarily have a lot of people helping to move these donors from table to table, preparing them for use. Um, so it's difficult for someone, like I said before, if you have a 200 pound donor, once they're embalmed, they're closer to 300 pounds given the anatomical solution. And moving a 300 pound individual with one staff member can be very difficult and can lead to liability, 
injury, things of the sort, especially if they don't have um, electric lifts. Um, a lot of these programs are still functioning with um, movable hydraulic lifts, which you and I both know if you don't get those exactly perfect, those lifts will tip right over if given the opportunity. So weight can be an extreme limiting factor for a lot of families that are considering dementia. Families like memorization body may not necessarily be there, but are there options? I mean, again, we have a broad audience here. Is there options and how quickly does a body have to get to the medical school? Is there a time limit? Usually within a day or two uh, to get to the medical school. If refrigeration is um, sufficient, sometimes it can be expanded a little bit longer than that. But most of the time, um, within a day or two, is what they consider to be an acceptable limit for embalming to take place in order for that individual to be a very viable donor for, for medical study. There are some circumstances where medical facilities will use what we refer to as a fresh frozen donor. And those individuals, instead of going through the embalming process, will be completely frozen and will be utilized without any preservation whatsoever. And that is in the absence of being able to use soft curation methods so that surgeons, uh, physicians can practice medical procedures, mostly surgical procedures, with um, a, a pretty normal type of tissue texture and pliability, which has become a, a very major issue in the field. But aside from, from that, if, if you're disqualified from a medical program, mortuary programs are a very good option for donation. If you're disqualified from a mortuary program, um, there are not a ton of options out there um, post-mortuary program. Are there any words of wisdom for students or seasoned embalmers that may want to seek employment at a medical school or a research facility? Absolutely. Understand that the embalming process that you are taught in mortuary school that prepares the body for a funeral is completely different than the process that you're using to prepare a body for use in scientific fields. So all of the aesthetic that you're looking for in funeral home embalming goes right out the window. Um, everything that you're doing for medical purposes will give you a donor that is not aesthetically pleasing at all. You will have varied coloration. Um, generally speaking, the coloration is going to be a lot darker and you get that embalmer's gray that we are taught to really try to avoid. But one of the major factors with anatomical embalming is that use of phenol back to um, that extremely dangerous chemical that we were talking about earlier. Phenol is a chemical cauterant and to cauterize literally means to cook. So if you think about um, a hamburger, for example, if you're cooking a hamburger, you'll start to see um, 
some globular looking substances coming out of the side while you're cooking it. We've all seen it, totally normal for cooking a hamburger. And most people just assume that it's fat. It isn't, it's blood. Once the blood starts to cook, you get this gray globular matter that's coming out and kind of adhering to the side of the pan. The same thing happens when the blood is chemically cooked. So the first time that you're introducing phenol into the system, once it comes in contact with the blood, it immediately starts to cauterize that blood. That blood starts to solidify, become globular, and the biggest issue you're going to run into is that it will solidify in the arterial system. So you won't be able to get your fluid all the way to the extremities in any kind of manner. So before you start anatomical embalming, pre-injection is absolutely 100% necessary because you want to clear as much of the blood out of the system and out of the capillaries as possible, getting it out of the way before that phenol goes into the system. And phenol can be pretty important for standard embalming, anatomical embalming, because it works really well as a secondary preservation, but also for antifungal purposes. Um, fungal contamination, mold contamination can be a big issue in some anatomical labs because the spores will get into the, um, the HVAC system and start to recirculate through the room. And a lot of those spores can thrive in environments that you wouldn't think they'd be able to. Um, a perfectly preserved body is still going to be um, susceptible to fungal infection. So we have to make sure that we've got something that's going to fight those fungal spores taking hold. And phenol does work incredibly well for that. I'm sure people are wondering, if I donate my body, will my family be able to get my body back at the end? Do they Are they able to get cremated mains back? How does that all play out? Yeah, absolutely. Depending on the program, um, I mentioned earlier that some donors are what we refer to as forever donors. So those individuals will will not be returned from the program. Those individuals, um, typically speaking, the soft tissues are disposed of as medical waste, um, depending on whether or not they want to preserve some of those tissues like certain organs long-term. And a good portion of the time, they may be reduced to bone for anthropological study um, within the same medical program. But that is not typical. In most programs, once the usefulness of that particular donor has expired, which could be anywhere from six months to five years, the individual is cremated. And we are very careful to make sure that, especially if the individual is utilized for dissection, that all of the soft tissues that they have are kept with that individual, nothing is disposed of, so that when cremation takes place after the utilization has happened, 
everything that that individual came with is cremated with them. And the families are welcome to have those cremated remains back. In some programs, family members may not want the cremated remains back. And in those circumstances, most of those programs will have uh, burial plots where the donors will be buried in lieu of being returned to them. So either way, they are respectfully taken care of, even if the family doesn't get them, they're still going to absolutely be able to get. And that's, well, that's, good. that's one of the, the really important things to keep in mind is that regardless of how the donor is used, they are treated with the utmost respect the entire time they are being utilized. So we make sure prior to any students coming into the laboratory, whether it's for medical use, whether it's for use in a mortuary school, those students are given a very long lecture about what it means to be a donor and the incredible gift that they're being given for either a family member or that individual themselves bequeathing that, that body for them to be able to use. It is an astronomical gift. Um, so they are, they are given a long lecture about appropriate treatment, how the processes work, and sometimes, depending on the program, they may be given some background on that particular individual so that they never forget you are working with a human being this is not something where you disassociate and you know, you're you're just working with another body. This is a human being that somebody loves, that was somebody's child, somebody's parent, somebody's family member, somebody's friend. And regardless of where they came from or what their past history was, they've given you an amazing gift and should be given the utmost respect because of that. Thank you very much. I think we have two shameless plugs in order. So if a anatomical embalmer or a medical school would want to obtain your safer products, where could they do that? Well, one of the companies that I work with is called Green Solutions Group. And they're the ones that have the non-toxic embalming fluid. We are, we're doing a lot with standard anatomical balming that gives you the firmness that, that formaldehyde will give you. And we're also working on formulations for soft curation, which gives the pliability for surgical use. And you can actually go ahead and Google them at gogreensolutions.com. And they would be more than happy to send you information or um, sometimes they'll send out samples for you to be able to try in your own laboratory. You now have a book that you're writing at the moment about anatomical embalming? I do. I do. I'm working with a company called Tuesday Evening Publications, and they specialize in mortuary publications. So I'm working with them, and we're looking within the next year to publish a book all about anatomical embalming, and the ethical use of anatomical donors. And of course, when that is published, we will be sure to have a link on the mortuarymayhem.com website uh, to make sure that everyone can find that easily. Oh, thank you. I know you do some consulting as well. If 
someone was to look and seek your guidance, how could they reach you? Uh, I have a website as well. It's rotabotllc.com. And uh, the spelling is a little weird, which is R-O-D-A-B-A-U-G-H. So um, anything that anybody needs, they can go onto the website. All of the contact information is there, and I'll be more than happy to help in any way that I can. Thank you, Shauna, for joining us today. And a wealth of knowledge. And of course, Shauna is a well-round wealth of knowledge, so she will be a frequent guest on our show, so you can look forward to that uh, for future episodes as well. Great. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. We hope you join us next month. For our guest, Bruce Likely, the president of TribuCast. TribuCast is the leading remote funeral attendance program. Join us as Bruce discusses how the industry has changed in light of families being able to remotely attend services and how we can better serve families. TribuCast is breaking down barriers allowing family members that are otherwise too far or too ill to be there as well as providing a dynamic option for high-profile services and giving your standard service the same attention. Since the TribuCast team handles the customer service, you can focus on directing your services and not playing technical support. Also, announcing that you have the opportunity to travel with yours truly to Peru the summer of 2023. I will be leading a faculty-led short-term study abroad trip for 11 days and will move frequently covering major sites of Peru, including two days in the Amazon with an indigenous tribe, and of course, a day at Machu Picchu. For more information, visit MortuaryMayhem.com and scroll until you see the llama. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mortuary Mayhem. For links to information discussed during this episode, please visit the website at www.MortuaryMayhem.com. Do you have questions, comments, Suggestions for topics or want to be a guest on the show? Email us at podcast at mortuarymayhem.com. We should do this again sometime.